Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a special guest today, Joe Dumb is an assistant professor of legal studies at Moorhead State University in Moorhead, Kentucky. He teaches undergraduate courses in a bunch of intense legal stuff that I don't really understand, like torts and does a lot of legal research and stuff. But uh, he's represented petitioners and plaintiffs in a landmark Kentucky civil rights case, which went as far as the Supreme Court, which we will drill down on later in this interview. He's also the host of two legally themed podcasts, Heightened Security and uh, um, Parade of Horribles, excuse me. Most, well, one thing that people will really appreciate about Joe and my listenership is that he is the, uh, on the board of directors of Nerd Louisville, which is a organization that uh, promotes uh, nerdy things. I mean, if you look at um, Joe's website, he has an Isaac Asimov quote on, on, on his blog. So we gotta, we got to love that. Uh, also on the board of directors of House of Ruth, which is uh, HIV AIDS housing advocacy group. Uh, Joe is on my radar because we came from the same small tribe. Uh, Joe grew up in the straight edge hardcore scene, basically two and a half depending upon the traffic hours south of me in Louisville, Kentucky. So we grew up seeing a lot of the same bands growing, um, like your endpoints, your by the grace of gods, uh, which listeners to this podcast will remember Rob Pennington was a guest on our show. I wanted to interview Joe because I am very interested in punk rockers who grow up to do amazing things. And I feel like he's done some amazing things. So Joe, welcome to postcards from a dying world. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to get into your background and how you got into things, but I think it's really important first to just kind of give people a little bit about the important landmark cases that you worked on, and then we'll circle back and drill down on those in the process of how that happened. But can you tell people just an introduction to the case that you were involved with that ended up at the Supreme Court? Yeah, so so uh, I graduated from law school in 2012, started practicing law in Louisville. Um, in the fall of 2013, uh, our office, I worked in a plaintiff's uh, firm. We were all uh, self-employed, but we worked under the same umbrella, about 13 attorneys. And a buddy of mine, that I, a mentor of mine, walked up to my, my little cubicle and he said, hey, man, we got a phone call. You want to do gay marriage? I was like, what? He goes, you want to do gay marriage? We got it. We got plaintiffs who want to get gay married in Kentucky. You want to, you want to do it? I was like, yeah, I want to do it. And at the time, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, 2013, uh, the United States versus Windsor case had come down, which wasn't really a, uh, you know, didn't legalize gay marriage yet, but we were getting closer. And we had a bunch of couples in Kentucky who were either married in other states, but weren't getting recognized or, or wanted to get married in Kentucky. And they, they wanted to sue and they wanted to get married. And so they couldn't find anybody to rep them. The ACLU turned them down. They thought, you know, if you sue in Kentucky, you're just going to lose. What a waste of time. Mm. Um, I mean, they were kind of right, but I'll get to that in a second. But they couldn't find any attorneys. And they and my firm did a lot of um, uh, constitutional rights, uh, discrimination cases. And so we were kind of 
you know, local experts on that topic. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. And so three of us from my firm uh, took on the case, uh, which ev uh, eventually became two years later, what's known as Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the big gay marriage case where the Supreme Court declared that states could no longer ban gay marriage in the country. Our, our portion of it was two cases in Kentucky, uh, Burke versus Bashir and Love versus Bashir, which we tried to get as the big name on the case, uh, but, but failed, unfortunately. Uh, we, we, we took those two cases, and then once we got up to the Supreme Court, we were combined with a bunch of others, including Obergefell, which got the name. So, so yeah, so I got to work on the gay marriage case um, uh, for two years of my life, and then uh, immediately, almost immediately after, I was one of the attorneys who sued a lady named Kim Davis, who a lot of people know, uh, and who actually I now work in the same town uh, that she lives. Um, she, uh, she refused to grant marriage licenses to folks who... Uh, uh, had a legal right to them after Obergefell, and so we sued her, and then and won that case. And uh, all of our all of our plaintiffs uh, plaintiff couples are now married, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, still happily married. Um, and so I worked on uh, the the Kim Davis case as well. So those are my my two big claims of, to fame. Even though all of my clients were special to me, and I love all of them, and all all the cases I worked on uh, uh, were awesome before sure. I retired at 32, uh, 36 years old. Right. Well, here's the thing, and we'll we'll drill down down on that case. But what was interesting to me was I followed uh, your work on Twitter and Facebook while you were, were while you were doing it, partially because it was really cool to me. Like, here's this kid that I usually uh, talk about death metal and <laughs> old school science fiction with. All of a sudden, he's a lawyer in this huge case, and and so it was really cool to see that happen. So I just wanted to whet people's appetite so you know that we're going to get into some serious stuff. But I do want to talk about where you came from and how you got into things, because for me, part of it is is, is the journey that <clears throat> those of us who grew up on punk rock know that a lot of us feel that if it wasn't for punk rock and hardcore and, and those types of things, and I would include science fiction in your case, too, if we didn't get into these things that got us thinking about grander or bigger or wider issues of the world, we may not have found ourselves in the position to do these things, right? And so, you know, a lot of it is, is I don't want parents to be scared if their kid comes home with a mohawk, right? Like, right. They, they may end up be, you know, the next Joe Dunman. So, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, ruining the institution of marriage. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, or saving it. So well, it depends um, on how you look at it. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, you grew up in Louisville and a lot of people like Louisville is a very progressive town, but it's still in the South. And that. Uh, that yeah. 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 Being on that side of the river, like I'm not saying that Indiana is a bastion of progression. <laughs> no, I, no. I have the experience of living in because I grew up in Bloomington, which is like the Berkeley of Indiana. Right. Uh, well, yeah. The only good town in Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd say Indianapolis is coming around and we I got a lot of friends back in Indy who would disagree, but you know, Indy produced your Kirk Catalyst too, you know, yeah. and, and um, I mean, whatever. Yeah. But I, Indiana progression, you know, we're still kind of part of the South, but, but being in Louisville, you're still pretty much on that other side of the river. It is the South really, honestly. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So growing, where did you, how did you grow up in Louisville? How did you get into to punk rock and all that? Like what's, what's your story, Joe? Well, okay. So, so a couple, we, you talked about science fiction earlier. So, so I guess my interest in 
different things. Let's call them different things, right? A different uh, uh, mm -hmm. subcultural stuff. Um, was in middle school, I started listening to metal, like Metallica, Megadeth, stuff like that, 80s era, Metallica, Megadeth. Um, and then started reading science fiction, mostly Eismov, uh, you know, the, the bigs of Bradbury, the, the, the big, uh, uh, quote unquote, mainstream, golden age stuff. Um, and, and those two things, one, like metal taught me that music could sound different, right? There was a, right. there was a different kind of music out there that people didn't talk about. You know, my parents didn't know anything about it. They weren't against it. They just didn't, my dad had no reference. He was a classic rock guy. And he's like, yeah, it's a little too heavy for me. Um, and my mom just, my mom was in a like eighties country. And so, um, but I was, you know, I, I was a good kid. I didn't get in any trouble or anything, but I liked the loud music. And I, I like. I tell people now it's like I like texture to my music. I, I just like a lot of texture and metal metal had a lot of texture. Um, I also started reading science fiction and that started to uh, I, I was a a Rush Law listening Rush Limbaugh listening child conservative until my sophomore year in high school um, when I read Stranger in a Strange Land. Right. And of all things, Heinlein is noticed known as this big right wing figure. Right. This libertarian right winger. Um, but that book like help me understand like the relative nature of culture, right? That, that it, it all depends on perspective. It all, you know, someone who comes from a different place may think of things totally differently. And that makes sense, right? It makes sense that they do that. Um, and so it really like, I mean, overnight I read the book and I, I was like, holy shit, the world's a lot, everything's a lot more complicated than I've been thinking it is, you know? And mm -hmm. I had a very conservative grandfather who pushed a bunch of like, Limbaugh and, and Thomas Sowell and a bunch of other horse shit onto me as a, as a teenager. Um, and I, it dawned on me like, well, the world's different. It's bigger than that. And then shortly after that, about the same time, a buddy down the street named Tim gave me a start today, right? Gave me a tape of Gorilla Biscuits start today. And I, I listened to it and I was like, well, this isn't quite, this isn't metal, right? This isn't Metallica. But this mm -hmm. shit is awesome. This is hard as hell. And this, you know, and this this band rules. No, that's an all-timer record for me. And and when I was in high school, Start Today was, you know, I was already straight edge when I heard Start Today, but it was like that Gorilla Biscuits album was what made me think I, I want to be more serious about this because I, I really like it. And, you know, it, it, it was a foundational record. And I still consider it an all-timer top five record. Yeah, it was it, something about it. Like I, I heard that and it, it just, I mean, it, it sparked something inside of me. Now, now at the time when he gave me that record, I had no concept of the hardcore scene. I wasn't going to shows. I mean, that was literally my introduction to hardcore. Very shortly after that record, I started going to Louisville shows. Um, and so this would be about late 94, right as Endpoint and Falling Forward and all those bands are, are, are shutting down. Um, I, I, I saw Endpoint once. I missed Falling Forward, um, but I did. Uh, I missed Sunspring, but I did get. To, but but I came in right at about late '94, early '95, and there were a ton of stuff. Uh, Hedge was taken off. Um, By the Grace of God was getting underway. I mean, a lot. It was a, It was still a great era, like '90s era uh, Louisville. Um, Elliot was taken off. Um, so there were a ton of great bands. I mean. It, there was a summer, summer of 96 and summer of 97, there was literally a show every single day. You go to Sparks down in downtown and there was a show every day of the week. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was literally, and I, I was, I was, I was finishing up high school. I was, I wasn't, wasn't quite going off to college yet. And so that was, I mean, my junior and senior year of high school were just amazing. 
uh, lots of you know, touring bands came in, of course. I mean, all the big touring bands hit Louisville. Yeah, it's just literally, I mean, it just could not have been better timing for me. Um, and of course, like when I first got into hardcore, I wasn't straight edge. Um, I, I was kind of a heavy drinker, 16 or 17. And my, my mom was drinking. And so I always had alcohol available. Um, and, and but I had a couple bad experiences and I had a ton of friends that were already straight edge. And I was I was already like destroy the machines was a huge favorite uh, record of mine uh, uh, when I first got into hardcore. Other for, than for those who might not be into hardcore that destroy the machines is an album by uh earth crisis and at the time i was living in syracuse which is earth crisis hometown right so, yeah so, so yeah you, so i missed you, out you on that, that record yeah i missed out on that louisville period but i well actually i moved there right after destroy the machine so i was there when they were writing um gamora seasons yeah yeah I, and, and so like that was another one of the, the early bands that i got into and i love destroy the machines and i knew all about you know i had a lot of friends that were straight edge and i knew all about it and at first i was the cool guy I was like, oh come on you guys a bunch of republicans blah 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 but then like you know it, it dawned on me early on i'm very introspective very self-aware i was like you know this alcohol shit's just not i don't like the way you know it, my mom handles it i don't like the way i handle it it's like meanwhile there's a bunch of cool ass bands that I like and all the friends that I know that are straight edge are awesome. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to claim straight edge. And so that was late 96, late 95, I guess 96. And I have claimed it ever since. Uh, it, it never stopped making sense to me. And so still today, if people, you know, if it, if it comes up, I'm like, yeah, I still, I claim straight edge. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the progression. Then from there, I just got older. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and, and I should, again, this is a thing of like, I know some people, are from our scene and some are not, but straight edge is just basically a drug-free subculture of punk rock. And, um, and that is the community that, that, you know, I, I've been straight edge since 89. So I got a couple years on you, but just a, few. Um, just a few. So I'm one generation ahead of you in hardcore terms, but that can yeah. be the difference between Frodo and um, Gandalf and hardcore terms. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but that's cool too. Cause I think, you and I, one of the reasons I think we, we've bonded online all the time is we kind of have similar backgrounds, got into science fiction, got serious about science fiction, got into metal, and then got into hardcore, and a lot of the same records and things, so a lot of the same books, same records, so yeah, um, the difference, I, I think we might have been at some of the same endpoint shows in 94 or in that era because I was still in the Midwest at that time. Those endpoint shows uh, in the early '90s in Louisville are legendary. They were huge. They, the The success of that band locally is just kind of weird and legendary. And the ver reverberations for your hardcore scene in Louisville, I think endpoint, even after they were gone, I think their ghost or their their kind of vibe created this kind of um, more thoughtful brand of hardcore that 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 you know, you guys weren't like a tough guy city, right? So like, not really. No, we, we had, a, we had a, a few crew members here and there that, that uh, dabbled in, in uh, being dicks. But uh, for the most part, Louisville, Louisville was a, a very um, uh, accessible scene to anybody. And it's funny, right. We, we mentioned, I, I, I almost missed Endpoint entirely. Um, but, but the very, one of the first local records that, that was recommended was Catharsis, right? Endpoint Catharsis. Joe, you got to listen to this record. Yeah. And it's like, it was, it was, I, I wore that CD out, right? I mean, it, it, yeah. I, I cannot believe it, it, it didn't fall apart. 
but and so Rob, right? You had Rob on, and 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 as you, you've mentioned, hardcore generations, right? You and Rob are in the generation just ahead of me. He's you guys are about ten years older than me, or so. I'm, I just hit forty. Rob uh, actually has a couple of years on me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's very old. Let's make that clear for your listeners. He just Rob, turned fifty. Rob is extremely old, but but I mean, he he was the closest thing to which you know in Louisville, you know, a celebrity you can get now in the heart. And he and a bunch of other people in the scene were very clear, you know, up on stage. Look, we're not celebrities. We're not better than you. We're not special. Which of course also drew me to hardcore, right? That you you could be friends with every with all of your favorite bands. Um, it wasn't a barrier and, a, you know, it's a tour bus coming in. And so, so you know, I really looked up to Rob cause Rob, like you said, Rob sang and a bunch of other singers, uh, sang about stuff that wasn't stupid. It wasn't, it, and it, you know, it wasn't love songs. It wasn't, it was about the world around us. And, and, and from a perspective of, of empathy and concern for others and empathy for animals and empathy for, for the environment that, you know, you don't, couldn't hear anywhere else. I mean, like, you know, the, the biggest thing, you know, the pop cultural phenomenon around it's like, you know, MC Hammer and shit. And it's like, it's not, uh, it, it's just a different world. And, and, and I, I was really drawn to that. And of course, you know, at the time, this was pre, just before the internet too. And so it was still mm-hmm. zines and uh, mixtapes and all the rest. And Jesus, I feel lucky having, having slipped in right at that moment before it, it all changed. Yeah. Well, and that's the, that's one thing Rob and I talked about in our conversation was with two things. We, we talked about that, you know, the, I didn't use the term father figure, but you know, he ended up with this kind of father figure role to a whole city of yeah. kids that were growing up in the hardcore scene. And there was a special weight that he had to learn to live with. Right. And there were times where it got too much for him. And then but at the same time, like what, what you said about like getting into that special time is being in there before the Internet and being there before, you know, before Victory Records really took over, you know, yeah. and all that stuff. I think being a part of the Midwest hardcore scene, there was like a, a real family atmosphere and, you know, a lot of and that's why I think a lot of the older generation of hardcore kids, that's the ones that we're going to be talking to a lot on this podcast you know, all ended up doing really cool things with their lives because, you know, they didn't have things handed to them. They had to learn how to do the shows, to do those things by themselves. And then they got really good at at doing these things. But was there a moment where, do do you have like a kind of standout moment where you feel like the hardcore scene kind of pushed you towards like, I got to do something more serious with my life? Or or do you think that kind of happened organically some other way? Well, yeah, it's so I didn't go to law school till I was 29. It, it was it was a delayed entry to law school. And I, and I went to law school more out of concern that my bachelor's degree was getting me nowhere. Right. I, I had I was working at the University of Louisville in the data entry department. I had a, I went to college uh, in, uh, as a major in sociology and history. And I think mm-hmm. hardcore had a big influence on that. Right. I wanted to learn more about the world around me, understand America and, and, and things globally. Um, and I, sociology was a huge wake up uh, to me. I mean, I really l- learned ways to think about other people in the world that I think have always benefited me. Um, but but I, then I, I just kind of took, you know, I just got a job and, and I went to work at L and I was doing uh, as a manager, like a low level manager, making like 38 grand a year. And they had tuition remission. Uh, and so they were like, we'll pay for half your tuition if you want to go to school while you work, work here. I was like, well, 
I'll go to law school. What else am I doing? And so I, I uh, enrolled in law school. But but the whole time, right, the, the idea, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was getting into. Like, I didn't know anything about law. Um, I was, you know, a pretty smart guy, obviously. I did well in the LSAT and everything, but but I didn't know what I was getting into. And then once I got in there, right, uh, uh, I realized like, wow, the, you know, the law is just really a tool, right? It's a tool for power. And, and, and whoever wields it, whoever speaks the magic language can really get stuff done if the conditions are right, if the situation is right, the timing is right. And it really, the, the power of it all really uh, sunk into me. And I was like, you know what? I, I am a, a, a do-gooder at heart, right? I'm a, I'm a conscious person and I want to help people. Let's see what I can do. Let's see if I can use this law shit to, to help other people. And so after I graduated, I did, I did car accidents for about 10 months and, and didn't really enjoy it. Um, and I fell in with a group of, of uh, professional do-gooders who uh, were mostly civil rights attorneys, mostly plaintiffs attorneys who, who sued the shit out of the government and cops and, and anybody who beat up at somebody else. Um, and, and I was really drawn to that and then I started working that and then just fell into some stuff, right? I didn't seek out, you know, gay marriage. I didn't seek out any of the stuff I did, but I, I, I fell into a lot of good work and was able to help people. So, yeah, so kind of, I mean, at the whole, the whole time, like I always think of myself as a hardcore kid, right? And, right. and I, I try to live my life consistent with those values, right? I'm helping others. I'm, I'm taking things upon myself if I can. I'm being empathetic to others. At least these are the values that I pulled out of hardcore. Other people just learn how to hit, you know, hit people in the face while the music plays or something. But, but I learned a, a lot of, you know, don't trust the government, trust other people, help other people as much as you can. Um, you know, uh, we, and, and it's funny too, because I am now politically far more radical than I was as a hardcore kid. And I, I think back to that all the time, like I've become more right. radical as I've gotten older. And as a, after, as I become a lawyer, I've gotten more and more radical, um, less and less interested in, in, in maintaining many of our institutions than I used to be. Um, and, and so, um, it, it's funny how it goes, but it's just like a lifelong progression. And of course, I still listen to all those bands, right? I still listen to the shit out of 90s hardcore. I still li I listen to a lot of new hardcore too, um, but uh, but a lot of the old stuff I still listen to and it's still very close to me. And so, yeah, I and mean, then that mindset has never left me. It, it's motivated me, at least in the background, my whole life. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I don't, it's very rare that a new hardcore band in fact, I got made fun of because a couple of years ago, I told a bunch of my friends, I was like, hey, I found a new hardcore band that I like. And then I was told that I was cheating by picking Fireburn because they're all older dudes yeah. doing a new band. And I was like, hey, no, but it's really good. And then I realized, like, even the bands I think are new are like have been broken up for 10 years. So yeah. um, I yeah. keep up more with metal, honestly, because I feel like I'm more of a musically, I'm more of a metal dude. But um, spiritually, I'm more of a hardcore guy. You know what I mean? I do. That's exactly. So so I, I go to far more metal. Show, well, forget the year of COVID or whatever. Right. But yeah, I, uh, over the past decade or so, I've been to way more metal shows than I have hardcore shows. Uh, but I right. have been to a lot of hardcore shows, too. And man, I mean, it's the scene is still well alive. I mean, there are kids, kids, uh, you know, 20 years younger than me are 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 keeping it going and fueling it there's some awesome bands um yeah it's it's and it's way at least in louisville it's way more diverse than it used to be right i mean there's yeah. there are kids and trans kids and 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 kids of, of, of a whole spectrum of of backgrounds 
that you know still in the 90s it was mostly white dudes right i mean they most yeah. i mean we we had you know louisville was was an was an open and and accepting place but i mean mostly the people drawn to the music were people that look like us and so it's less so now and that's so good to see well when i lived in portland i was working at cleveland high school and there was a group of kids that were like freshmen sophomores at the time and like one of them was wearing a seven second shirt one day i realized at one point that i had seen seven seconds live like a full 15 years before this kid was born (laughs) (laughs) and then i was like that's when when time when time catches up to you and you're like or it was, it was at least 10 years. It was at least 10 years before. Yeah. And then, so, and like, this kid's shocked. He's like, hey, this teacher knows seven seconds. And I'm like, dude, you cannot be that way now. <laughs> no. Because, no, no, because all the old dudes are around. Like, when I was a kid, if somebody, if you had a teacher that was into punk rock, it was shocking, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, especially um, early punk rock, you, I mean, it's it just a, it, it drew a different uh, group of kids, I think. It, I don't know. It's the 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 nerdy, upwardly mobile types were not usually drawn to punk rock in the early days. So, well, uh, I don't well, know. Well, and you know that's what my novel, Punk Rock Ghost Story. A lot of it was using the ghost story to 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 examine the difference between um, punk rock before the internet and after the internet. You know, yeah, and how yeah. like people don't realize that before Nirvana, it was not cool to be different, and like people wanted you dead. Rob and I talked yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and growing up into hardcore and punk rock after Nirvana is a completely different thing because it got, you know, Nirvana kind of made it okay to to walk around your school looking different. And to, yeah, yeah. Two points about that. First of all, yesterday, so I, I go to the the campus gym on a regular basis. I, I try to train pretty often, and there was a kid in the gym yesterday with a Nirvana T-shirt on, and I was like, that that was. As if I, if I had worn like a Led Zeppelin t-shirt in high school, it would have been the exact same thing, right? This kid is wearing right. a classic rock t-shirt. He was born after Nirvana broke up, right? After Kurt Cobain died, this kid was born. And so I thought that was funny. Uh, the, the second one was like, I, I came into hardcore, you know, 95, 96. My senior year in high school, we were the cool kids, right? The hardcore kids yeah. were the cool kids. We... There, there were there were popular girls who wanted to date me, right? And that was weird. And and, and you know the guys like Chris Higdon from Elliot and Falling Forward, he went to the same high school I did, and he was about five or six years ahead of me. Very different back then, right? They were still you know the chased by the jocks and stuff like that. By by the late '90s, suddenly counterculture, alternative stuff was cool, and we I I picked a great time to be into it. Let's just say that. So <laughs> yeah, far better than we did. Yeah, um, wait, I had it so much easier. I mean, we, we were, we were, hey, the there's pluses, there's pluses and minuses to that. Like, you, you, yeah. you know, learn how to defend yourself. That's a good thing. So, yeah, um, we were so, real soft. We were real soft. Now, eventually, now I do want to tease this too that people should stick around because I'm going to save this for the end, but I do want to nerd out on science fiction with Joe a little bit at the end. Um, so we'll talk about your key favorite science fiction books, and um, I'm going to try to give you s- some recommendations and tie it into uh, for for the listener. So, um, but so you went to law school, you end up with this case. Now, this had to be different too because once you once you were given this case, you know, like your partners just saying, "Hey, do you want to do this gay marriage thing?" 
how much did you realize that you were going to become personally because you were in a lot of ways becoming engaged in these people's marriage you're you're a huge part of their marriage so you're going to get to know these people better you're going to get to know and it's going to take on a totally different meaning like you know we become invested in the the artists that we listen to right and we learn things about them but you're in a situation now where you're becoming invested in these people's lives and 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 a very uh, intimate way yeah so so the thing about being a lawyer is right you're a medium for other people um it's it's you stand in, you know, you're, you're there to translate a, a complicated system on behalf of somebody else. And one thing they don't teach you in law school, one is one, you're going to spend a lot of time as a life counselor, right? You spend tons of time telling people what not to do, what they should do, trying to co- coach them through really tough situations. I mean, I dealt with clients who just gotten fired. I got dealt with, deal with clients who were seriously injured, right? The worst part of their life. And you have to reassure them and help them and give them good advice and you stuff. need to have a bedside manner as it were absolutely and and so i'm pretty good about you know i'm i, I i'm naturally i i'm a, I'm a i think i'm a good teacher i think i'm a good coach i you know I, I can empathize with other human beings i see myself in other people all the time and so that that came easy to me but man i know a lot of attorneys who are really bad at it and they don't teach it so but but so with the gay marriage case so at first we took it on and it was it was a shot in the dark right we we had no idea if this thing was going to be successful the case, when, after the lawsuit was filed, it was assigned to a, a Republican judge and in, in a federal judge in Louisville named John Hayburn, who was, it turns out, an old family friend. He and my dad were buddies year, uh, years before. But so we got assigned to a Republican judge and we're like, oh, man, there's, we're just going to lose. We're just going to lose and then we're going to have to appeal and keep losing and see how this goes. Um, but, but at first, it didn't really sink into me the gravity of the situation, right? But we got to meet as we met all the clients. So, Joe, one, one thing too. Um, so you were saying that they don't really teach this in law school. Now you're a teacher. Are you are you making a point to to teach counseling oh, in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have the benefit. I'm a, I'm in an undergrad program, right? I'm not I'm not a law school professor. I'm an undergrad professor. And our program is geared towards students who eventually go on to law school or go straight into law practice as paralegals. And I, yes, it's constantly, look, you're going to have people crying on your shoulder. You've got to be ready to help them. Right. Mm, and and with, with the caveat that you're not a licensed health, you know, like mental health professional. And so, um, but, but be prepared for that. You're going to have to carry other people's uh, uh, misery on your shoulders for a while. I mean, and that breaks down a lot of attorneys too. We have a really high suicide rate, really uh, heavy alcoholism in the law because of the weight of carrying other people's problems. It's very difficult. And the stress of the adversarial nature of our job. But anyway, so so like it really- Yeah, I'm started, sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's it's good. It's good. And and But as we talked to the clients, we started asking them questions, right? We Most of our clients had been together at least 10 years or more. We had, there was a couple from Bardstown, Kentucky. You probably know where Bardstown is. It's just south of Louisville. They'd been together 40 years in the closet for 40 years. They had told they had been roommates, quote unquote, for their entire lives. When they drove up to Iowa to get married in 2013, they held hands under the table in court because they were afraid other people would see them. Like you start to realize like the the nature of of you know the the stigma that was placed on on uh, gay couples and and whatnot by talking to all these clients. 
and they tell you know and and they cry and they, they, they you meet their kids and all this stuff and you really get to realize like this you know marriage is not important to everybody but to these folks it was really really important it was it was mm. deeply important to them that they get the the social recognition that they felt they deserved and it, you know at the time i'm i'm not currently married but i was at the time and it made me feel very deeply uh, about my own marriage and and stuff and so like it really started to sink in and it it, it took off then when we won the first case in in the lower court in the trial court level in front of that republican federal judge he he said we win he he said yes absolutely kentucky's laws are unconstitutional you have to recognize gay marriages from other states we did not see that coming it was a great surprise right. But then it, it started to sink in like now, you know, this is the law now until the state appealed. Um, and then when the state appealed, now we got to go to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the next level of the federal judiciary. And it's it really started to sink. And now there was media attention. Right. People started. I was doing a press conference every other, or, or an interview every couple of days. I was also starting to get death threats, which was a, a nice change of pace, you know, and so starting to get anonymous threats saying we were destroying the institution of marriage and society. We were communists and all the rest. The same thing you hear about everything. Yeah. Um, and so it really started to sink in how, how big of a deal it was becoming, but also for the clients, the clients now had hope, right? They were like, my God, we're, our marriage is valid for at least three days until the state appealed. And, and so, and, and then it just built, it built up. And then we went to the sixth circuit court of appeals and we lost, right? Uh, the, the judge Sutton wrote an opinion that said, no, actually, uh, the, the gay marriage bans are perfectly constitutional. That That is when it really sank in because that was the only court to do that. All the other federal circuit courts had said, no, gay marriage gay marriage must be allowed. And so when he's, when they wrote uh, the Sixth Circuit opinion that, that actually the, the marriage just is- because or like what was- what? Oh, federalism, it's up to the states. This is a democratic question, not a constitutional question. Uh, okay, um, gotcha. You know, uh, and- Sutton, Sutton's a Republican appointee. He was he was going to be on the Supreme Court, except that he ruled in favor of Obamacare. Oops, uh, and so that that took him off all their short lists. But he he said no. Actually, the state can ban gay marriage if it wants. That is when it sunk in because we knew as the only court that had done that. Now we were going to the Supreme Court because there was a circuit split. Right, the circuits and oh. the other play all over the country had said no, gay marriage must be allowed, and the Sixth Circuit said no, it can be banned. And so with that split, we knew holy shit, we're going to the Supreme Court. And this was, and this, and by this time, and, and of course we're, we're, it's a, it's five total lawyers, the two who originated the complaint. And then the three from my office who were doing uh, uh, most of the, the grunt work, uh, all the writing. I had to write two six circuit briefs uh, in about a week. Um, those are 14,000 words a piece. Uh, we had a very short window to get those filed. I spent every waking moment of my life for two weeks writing those things. And when we lost, we realized um, now we now it's serious. Now we're going to the Supreme Court. And so we took on some help from uh, there's a they had a clinic out at Stanford University's law school. They have a clinic to help Supreme Court cases. And the ACLU came on board to help us. And they were awesome and very helpful. And so now it's a big team. Right. And now it's a big, serious operation. But leading up to that moment. Right. It's like we're a tiny team of local lawyers who are are. Have just opened this huge Pandora's box of civil rights litigation. Um, and so, yeah. And then from then on, and then I found myself, I also had that, that moment when I was walking into the United States Supreme Court on argument day uh, in April of 2015. And there's a huge throng of people cheering and screaming at us and declaring that we're going to hell. Um, and me walking across that huge plaza with all my clients, my fellow count, uh, 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 colleagues walking into the building for argument day. I mean, that was and then walking down the steps afterwards, that huge crowd of people was just 
just surreal, absolutely surreal. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you a question that almost nobody else would ask you about the experience. When you're walking in there and they're all yelling all these things, did any hardcore songs jump into your head at any point? Like, did you, well, you were, you had like a free moment and you're thinking like, holy shit, I'm in this weird moment. Like, oh. I don't know. You may not have, but I just. No, and, and but I mean, I, I had very frequently, I've had moments all throughout my life of seeing myself as a, as a nerdy kid sitting in front of Sparks in Louisville on a hot summer day waiting for the next band to go on right with there's right. no conditioning in there we're all sweaty so we're sitting out and i'm sitting on the sidewalk waiting for the next band thinking what the hell am i going to do with my life right what mm-hmm. who am i what am i what am i going to do and then to that moment being like how the hell did i get here right <laughs> what, yeah what bizarre chain of events led to this moment and so uh so you, but you have totally slipped in a line from a hardcore lyric in one of these these big law documents, haven't you? Haven't you? Have you slipped one in? Because there are Earth Crisis lyrics hidden in my novels all over the. Oh place. yeah, I mean very subtly here and there. Well, well right now I'm, I'm writing a textbook about religion and the law, and uh, um, uh, Ray Capo's going in there. Uh, there's a case on a couple cases on the the Krishnas. And so I've got a picture of Ray in there as an example of a Hare Krishna believer. Um, and so of course, little, little things, you know, uh, very subtle uh, uh, references will be in there where they make sense. Um, yeah. I mean, not, not, not outright. And I've okay. never, I have, I've never quoted a band as a legal authority. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that just for, for one thing, like um, I, I, I've, if you look in my, my novels or my screenplays, there's almost always like a deep cut line from like a song like Constrict by Earth Crisis. No, I'm yeah. not quoting Firestorm, but there no. may, but but there'll be like a line and it's funny because like there's some that are more obvious. I I I think I had somebody one time say from protest to confrontation or something. Nice. It, yeah. In one yeah. of the things, but I just they they happen because I can't help it. And I think now I think it's funny. So now I do it on purpose, but I just imagine. All right. So anyways, but you're getting death threats <laughs> and all this yeah. stuff. Your team, I don't know. Do you think you took this a little differently because of like the world you came from or like the fact that you were a hardcore kid or I don't know. Well, well uh, so our, our team, I can't, the law firm I worked in was really awesome, right? It had a, a big diverse group of people, none of whom played golf. Like I was, it was amazing that I was able to practice law without anybody asking me if I wanted to play golf because golf sucks and you know what a waste of time. Um, but but so so two of the attorneys of the thirteen in my office were actually high school dropouts who went back to school and then got law degrees and, and became very successful attorneys. Uh, my my buddy Dan, who my, probably my closest mentor and friend, uh, Dan Cannon, it was kind of hardcore adjacent, right? I mean, had a lot of similar uh, same friends. Um, he, he played guitar. He was a guitar teacher. And, and so he, he, he wasn't, I don't think he went to hardcore shows like I did, but, but at least, you know, friends with friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, all the, all the folks in the firm, not, they weren't all the same. Some, there were a couple of uh, uh, frat boy uh, uh, country club folks, but, but everybody had the same general fuck the system kind of mentality, right? That, that, you know, we, we were there to, to be troublemakers as attorneys we're not there to defend the company. Every once in a while, we defend a company if it, if the case made sense. 
Um, but mostly we were there. We were fighting for workers. We were fighting for uh, uh, folks that have been downtrodden, people been beat up by police, stuff like that. Those were the cases that we took. And so we had a unified sense of purpose, I think, um, as I call it do-gooding, right? There were just a bunch of do-gooders um, and we were all on the same page as far as that went. And so it was you know, a very easy group of people to get along with. Um, and, you know, not to my knowledge, I was probably the only, you know, full on 90s hardcore kid going to shows every day, but everybody had the same general mentality. It was, it was a very punk place in a lot of ways, as much as a bunch of rich lawyers can be, right? It was a, it was a very punk place in that the law they were doing had that mentality, right? And we were, we were fighting the system. We were, we were standing up for the little guy. We were uh, challenging authority whenever it made sense. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it was, and everything I, I, every case I took on, I tried to be consistent with that idea. And, you know, when the, when the death threats come rolling in and then people like, that's when you realize like probably you're thinking you're, you're obviously thinking of your clients and the stakes for them, a lot of it, but I, it kind of forces you to confront the stakes that, that however misguided these people are, but you're thinking about the stakes that they have too, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And then, well, and then it can, yeah, you're kind of forced to think about like both sides of it for a little bit. Well, yeah, and it, it really, I mean, it helped me understand a lot of privilege that I enjoy, right? I'm a, I'm a straight white male raised Christian in the United States. Nobody has ever told me no on anything. Anything I've wanted to do, no one has ever told me no. Um, and and to, to see, I mean, I, I've always, right, I've been anti-racist and, and anti-fascist, you know, as, since the moment I got into the hardcore scene. But to really, I mean, I have to, legally speaking, step into the shoes of other people and represent their interests and realize that how just how damn easy I've had it. Um, it really, and, and, you know, the, the kind of threats that I was getting was something that they can, they couldn't hold hands in the mall without people threatening to beat them up. Right. I mean, something I have never experienced. Uh, and even as a hardcore kid, cause I came in at the time when counterculture was suddenly got cool. Um, and so seriously, I mean, I just, it really sunk in how damn coddled I'd been my whole life. And so mm. that was an important wake up call. And it also, it, it helped me uh, recognize that look, Look, I, having been coddled, I have incredible power. The least I can do is use it to help other people, right? To stand in. If I'm the only voice that the judge is willing to take seriously on this matter, then I'll be that voice, right? I'll stand up there as, as the straight-laced, suit-wearing, straight guy and say, you know, these gay people deserve uh, respect and, and, and legal protection just like anybody else. Um, so, yeah, it really, it helped me wake up just just how good I had, I had, had it and how much... Uh, how much that enabled me to help others. Yeah. And I had it on a smaller scale, nothing like going to the Supreme court, but during the ridiculous years where we were fighting to keep uh, the chargers in San Diego, all of a sudden I found <laughs> myself in, in meetings with the mayor in a suit. Right. And, right. and, and even just being in the meeting with the mayor, I'm just like thinking to myself, like, you know, like <laughs> I've had funny moments where, where I would like, I've been, you know, I was listening to Misery Index on my way into this meeting, you know, while I was walking down the street. And then here I am in this meeting with the freaking mayor, right? And I just want to be like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, so it is this weird thing when you're kind of playing both sides and you're like, you know, you know, you're a little different. And, you know, and th then it's also like a weird thing too. Like I had experience where I ran into at a football game, I ran into one of the mayor's main advisors when he was plastered 
And to just (laughs) see the guy who I took as this very serious public official, like so wasted, he could barely stand. I was like, it kind of took pegs out of it for me where I was like, not as intimidated afterwards. Cause I was like, I've seen you be an idiot. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing because as a, as a hardcore kid, I always feel like a kid for some reason. I I still feel like I'm, I'm 15 years old half the time. And I I assume that other people see me as 15 years old. Um, (laughs) But everybody's full of shit, right? Everybody is everybody is a douchebag in, in some way. And and you get up there in front of a judge and you realize like this guy is a dummy, right? He he makes all the same mistakes everybody else does. He probably makes worse mistakes than I do. You know, I, I don't even drink. Um, and and you realize like like you know, the authority that we ascribe to people with our brains, even not just in, in the letter of the law or whatever, but the authority that we ascribe to people in our heads just does so much work that um you know that disempowers you and and or makes you feel small really these are just folks i mean they're just faking it like everybody else is it's it's not and it's i think going to law school and becoming a lawyer really helped me appreciate that that you know mm-hmm. everybody still as they going, go. but still walking into the supreme court to argue a case is like a metal dude walking on stage and walking you know like it's it's a big deal it is so. It, it's weird because during that whole time, in my head, I have two. I have two uh, uh, con, con, conflicting ideas. Right, this institution is in, is incredible. It's huge. It's historical. It's very important. As a lawyer, right, this is the pinnacle of my career. I am not going to do any better than this. There are millions of lawyers who will live and die and never have a case get here. On the other hand, the Supreme Court is absolutely full of shit. One hundred percent. It's full of shit. It's it's a a vote of nine ideologues that are appointed for political reasons. It is not rooted in law. It's not rooted in. It's not even a court, really, in the way that we generally uh, think of courts. It has way too much power. Shouldn't even have to be in front of them begging for people's rights in the first place. Blah blah blah. Right. And so I have those two conflicting thoughts in my head at all times. And boy, yeah, it lifetime is, appointments is such bullshit. Such uh, well, bullshit. yeah, and it you know it it all. It was all a good idea, I think, right? The idea the was time, that, maybe. You know, right? Maybe you take them out of the maybe make them less political because then they're not having to run for re-election stuff. But I, I always joke, I was like, the only, the only, the only worse way than electing judges is appointing them, and the only worse way than appointing them is electing. There's just right. no good way to to put somebody uh, into that kind of power, uh, powerful role. I mean, role. just think about what that that word judge means outside of our hardcore context. Cause it's a really good context for hardcore kids. But <laughs> when you mentioned citing a, a, a hardcore, I was like, I should cite it and just put in a, the footnote judge. Right? right. And see if anybody wonders what judge I'm talking. The about. case of bringing it down, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, <laughs> the funny thing about um, that, just the idea that somebody like, Oh, this is a person that gets to judge someone's fate. And, you know, it's it, when you really think about it, it's a really kind of, you know, weird and messed up thing. But, you know, that's what you guys do. I mean, that's why we need advocates and we need people out there who understand the law and 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 will fight for people. So that, that I don't know. But, yeah, it, it is it is funny because you're right. You did get a chance that many lawyers will live their whole many great lawyers will live their whole lives and never get a chance to do that. And you know, that's, that's well, the thing. And that's a great segue into what I'm doing now. Right. I mean, when we, after we won that and then we, the Kim Davis case, 
it realized that I'd peaked way too early, you know, by, by the end of uh, the gay marriage case, I'd only been practicing five years. I mean, not even five years, three years. I'd only been practicing three years. Um, and I was like, what, what else am I going to do that comes anywhere near this? Right. I mean, traffic tickets, I mean, not that those aren't an important area of the law that I have lots of friends who get traffic tickets and I help them. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I, I, what am I going to do now? And so yeah, that's like, uh, Ted Alexander from my, my buddy from, uh, upstate New York, he's from Ithaca and he had never been in a band and he went to summer camp with the singer from saves the day, like when he was a kid. (laughs) Yeah, and never been in a band, and all of a sudden joined Saves the Day playing guitar um, right before Through Being Cool came out. Next thing you know, he's touring with Green Day. Yeah, and and then he was like, I, I'm I couldn't do it anymore. I was done. He did one band really. <laughs> he got to tour and play stadiums and all this stuff, and then he was like, I'm over it. And then ended up becoming an academic. And did. well, the last time yeah. I saw Ted, he was going to read college to become an academic. But yeah. You know, he, he just said, I peaked too early. I, you know, it was, and you were kind of the same thing. You, five years into it, you're at the Supreme Court. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so five years and, and I'd always been like, I, the, the trial level work, you know, I, I practiced five years and never took a case to trial. Most cases don't go to trial anymore. I, with the exception of a couple that got dismissed, I settled everything. It was, you know, I, what I like to call easy money. Uh, we, we did, we litigated for a couple of years and the other side wrote us a big check. Um, and, and so I did that for a while and, and never went to trial, but I, I didn't like the, I didn't like the, the trial level litigation stuff. I like the appellate work, right. They're just arguing about the law, um, uh, up in, at the higher level of court. It's much more academic and I'm much more, I mean, college was my favorite time in life. Law school was my favorite time in life, even though it was hard as shit. Um, and so I was like, you know what? mostly I like talking about the law and writing about the law. Why don't I just try to do that? Um, and so, so I, I lucked, totally lucked into this job at Moorhead State. I, I was friends with a friend, um, uh, my friend uh, Ben Carter, who's a, a great friend of mine, practices law in Louisville. And I was working with him. I'd left that, the firm that we won the gay marriage case with, I left that firm. It was too expensive to work there. It's like 1200 bucks a month for a cubicle. Um, and so, so I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wind my practice down try to find a teaching job. And so I'd moved over with, with Ben and he got a call out of the blue from a professor here. Who's like, Hey Ben, we, we need somebody to fill in a professor of ours. Just quick. Can you take the job? And he was like, I can't do it, but I know a guy. And right. so he turned the phone over to me. And so here I am, I've been here four years now teaching, uh, uh law classes to undergrads. And it is literally the best job I've ever had. I found, I've had like five different careers. I'm, I just turned 40 and I've had five careers. Um, and this is easily the best one by far. Oh, that's great. And you get to inspire a whole new generation of do-gooders. And- yeah, I don't, hopefully. I mean, I've already, I, I already know a couple, couple students have gone on to be Federalist Society members. And so I, I, they're dead to me. Uh, but everybody else, is, uh, everybody else is doing good work, I hope. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. You have a chance to, to influence them and and it's cool too. shot at it. Yeah. yeah, it's cool, too, because like I don't know a ton of you Louisville kids, but three of the ones that I know are are teaching at a college level, which is, you know, you, Rob and Duncan. And, and like it is, you know, something that I see because I've always I always thought Louisville was like one of the smarter because, you know, back in the day, we used to travel to shows in Columbus and Dayton and Chicago mm-hmm. You know, when you were in the Midwest, you went to Indian, Indianapolis and yeah. all those scenes, there's, I can point to kids from all those scenes that are doing cool things now. 
but uh, I always thought of Louisville as like one of the smarter towns and the fact that you guys are all teaching is kind of cool. Um, Lots of public school teachers too. I, most, I know, I mean, most of my, my close group of friends now are all either teaching in the public schools or, or college professors. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's really cool. Well, and, and that's one thing Rob and I talked about is there's a lot, a lot of us that came out of the hardcore scene that ended up doing work or working with um, people with disabilities. Like, you know, yeah. that's what I do for my day job. And then, um, and I know, especially from Syracuse, there's like five or six uh, old Syracuse hardcore kids. Like, for example, like Ryan Canavan from Dialysis and Pain mm-hmm. Like a Hex. And like, you know, he does the support work too. So it's like, you know, that's a job that's, you know, more giving back than, than some jobs. But, you know, like I said, each of these scenes, like I can point to, you know, um, you know, business owners, people who are doing labels, doing cool things like from each of these towns and kind of, you know, making their way. And that is really cool. All right. So um, I've taken you up a lot of your time. So and I, I, I teased this. So I do want to just nerd out on science fiction for a little bit. But one thing before that is, um, you know, if you're on the board of directors for Nerd Louisville, and it sounds like you had this mission, I just had this cool thing where an old coworker of mine wrote me to tell me that she's run out of science fiction books for her 10 year old to read. Who's like this insanely smart kid at 10 years old. Right. Who, who, who's already like, I need more books like Andy Weir, like 10 years old. And then yeah. I realized, and I had this whole conversation with her about, Hey, your kid's a dork. Really <laughs> go for it. Really push yeah. this. Cause this is awesome. Um, it sounds like you guys had a, a, a whole like nonprofit that's just like helping the nerdy kids like, um, you know, find resources. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so I'm, I'm no longer on the board of Nerd Louisville. When, when I moved to Moorhead, I, I resigned from the board. Oh, so. okay. But you were for a long time. I was a founding member. Um, and yeah, the idea was to create a network, not, I guess, I mean, it's a, it's a nonprofit and it does charity work. But the idea was to create a, an organization to to bolster nerdy stuff in town, and that's you know video games, role playing games. Mo- most of the, the original three members were were all D and D players of various sorts, and you know I, I, I until COVID ruined it. I had a regular D and D group um, uh, with some buddies that we need to revive. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and eventually, I mean, very shortly, we started fundraising. Uh, and then donating books and games to the library and other organizations around town uh, uh, to foster youth uh, participation in nerdy stuff. Um, uh, we we also had a podcast for a little bit. Uh, Mike, uh, the founding member, uh, Mike and I did a podcast. We got to interview Larry Elmore, the fantasy artist who did uh, the original D&D artwork, I guess the second edition D&D artwork. He lives in Litchfield, Kentucky. We, we went and hung out in his studio, in his amazing garage studio where he all these iconic oh, really cool. paintings of dragons and, and heroes. Um, and he, I mean, he's getting up there in, in years now too. So we got to do a lot of cool stuff with that, but yeah, I mean, nerd Louisville has lived on long. You know, I didn't need me. And so I left and, um, and now it, it's still churning along, uh, doing great work, donating a D and D handbook, you know, uh, players guides and stuff to the library. So kids can play um, uh, uh, buying magic, magic, the gathering starter kits. Magic's really my, my, uh, uh big gaming, uh, fix, um, great game for lawyers, uh, but, uh, uh, <laughs> donating magic sets and stuff, uh, working all, with lo- local, uh, game shops and stuff. 
Yeah, all I know about magic is um, uh, Brian Keene is a horror writer and uh, friends with and and know through the like he when he in his podcast he would talk about playing magic all the time with his son and and I was like yeah. I just didn't I didn't get it because it's like it was after my nerd time so I, I didn't yeah it, if you like just playing with rules all day it, it's literally I'm gonna fight you with this rule against your rule it's really I mean it's uh, and it's also expensive as hell it's really I mean it's it's not a once you get into it I'm sure it is oh gosh it's insane <laughs> yeah well that that's cool I I think um the idea that of, of promoting these things, I wish more cities would, would have something like that. Um, you know, and definitely, uh, uh, parents like, you know, well, it's like my wife was talking to one of her, one of her sisters and she said something about her sister said, like, I'm worried that my kids are growing up to be total nerds. And she was like, why are you worried? (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. You should be they're so gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're gonna be fine. And um, but anyways, all right. So let's let's talk science fiction, okay? Because what I want to do here, here's my idea. Because I know you're a golden age guy. So yeah, I'm, I'm way out of touch. I'm way out of touch. Just so you know that. So I'm gonna find some. We're gonna go through some of your favorite golden age works, and I'm gonna find you three let's say three new new wave 60s authors that are three books from the 60s new wave that you may not have ever heard of and i'm going to assign them to you okay and i'm going to write them down okay and then we're going to find three 21st century science fiction books that you haven't read but but we're going to start with give me like your five favorites and why they're your favorites so i know what i'm working with here foundation Easily the favorite, the, the original Foundation trilogy, um, all of Asimov's works. Well, uh, let's say, so I am a huge, let, let me clarify. So I love Isaac Asimov's writing. Recently, I realized that he was a horribly sexist, womanizing. Yeah, we all learned that. Fondling. Yeah. See, I, yeah, I read that. And, and, and so, it, and of course, I always suspected, because I'd heard rumors about that in various ways, but, but I hate, right, what a damn shame. Nevertheless, I still love his writing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am the kind of person who is at least open somewhat to separating art from the, the artist. I am uh, as well. Also, he's dead, right? I mean, we can't dig him up and punish him now. So but so the original Foundation trilogy, uh, the, the, his individual story that had the biggest impact on me was Nightfall. Nightfall was really a, a big deal to me as, as someone who, who felt very mildly the vengeance of the mob later on. I, I, I definitely, uh, uh, that story always stands out to me, um, how it, once your perspective changed, you can lose your mind. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, obviously, like I mentioned, so Foundation and Nightfall um, were big. I was never really into his robot books, not until later. So um, you didn't like like the um, Caves of Steel, the robot I mean, I, I've read those, but I read, I, those were those were space books to me they less robots more general space uh for some reason i, I read them all um i i didn't really you know naked sun is really it was really pertinent to uh, our quarantine situation so i indeed I, I accidentally read naked sun right at the beginning of our quarantine and it was perfect timing perfect yeah. timing yeah uh but, and and i will say that uh so yeah those those were big um in my mind i it 
Bicentennial Man I read in law school. I was assigned to read Bicentennial Man as part of a law and literature class. And that helped, that was a great uh, uh, story. I, I don't think I'd read it up until that point. So mostly I was focused on his, his, his big galactic empire books. Those were my main focus and, and mostly my interest as a, as a kid. Other than that, um, let's see, really, really enjoy Stranger in a Strange Land was a big book. Um, I also really like Starship Troopers. Uh, I know people are conflicted over that. I think, I mean, it really helped me understand fascism in some ways. And so uh, I think Starship Troopers is a good book. Um, so, so I mean, Bradbury's stuff, Martian Chronicles, um, uh, Fahrenheit, all those books. I mean, mostly, you know, if, if somebody were to give you you know, here's start with the basics. Like I was really into the basics. Um, but also, I mean, I read uh, Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin uh, later on and, and really loved that book, of course, uh, especially as I, my politics started getting more radical. Uh, so I really appreciate her. And of course, now I'm not staring at my, my science fiction bookshelf right now. So most of it's escaping my brain. Yeah, um, see, I'm lucky I got mine right here. So. Yeah, it's all law books in front of me. So yeah, and, and this particular shelf right here is my science fiction reference shelf. This is all nonfiction. So, I and I would highly recommend you read if you're, I mean, Asimov, yeah, whatever. But this book, The Futurians, <laughs> yes. is the whole history of that whole group of friends and how they got into things, um, which is which is super fun. Arthur, Arthur Clarke's you know, Childhood's End was, was a pretty good book that I enjoyed. Um, stuff, you know, but... Um, most mostly the the greatest hits of the greatest hits or or what i what really got me started as a kid all right so we need to get you a little deeper in into please into science fiction so let's start with new wave from the 60s some things like i'm going to give you a couple names but i'm going to give you three specific books have you read canticle for Leibowitz? yes yes i read that recently actually and really love that book so yes yeah that is to me the the my two favorite or what I think are the two best science fiction novels of the 20th century are stand on Zanzibar by John Bruner and Canticle for Leibowitz, I think are like the two best. Um, I'm not going to make stand on Zanzibar my recommendation. However, I do think eventually you you probably will want to read that. That book uh, predicted mass shootings as being like a thing in 1969, because that book is about overpopulation and, John Bruner, in my opinion, is one of the best science fiction writers of the 20th century. And he also wrote a novel called The Sheep Look Up, which is on my, it's my number three of all time horror novels. And it's on my top science fiction list as well, because it's both. And it was a huge influence on my novel, Ring of Fire. But still, I'm not, that's not where I'm going. I'm going to suggest, let's see, let me look at the shelf here. I'm going to suggest... The work of Norman Spinrad. For okay. Him. He's still with us. Uh, but he is also, like Le Guin, he's an anarchist science fiction writer. Go on. Yes, and I'm going to suggest one of his, what I would consider to be his anarchist dune, which is The Void Captain's Tale by Norman Spinrad from, from the 80s. Even though it was written in the 80s, he comes from that 50, 60s new wave. Okay. Okay. Now, have you read, have you read, you've probably read the classics with Philip K. Dick, right? Yeah, yeah, that and, uh, let's see, I, I had a cyberpunk phase for a little bit, um, so I've read a couple of Gibson's books, um, 
I I had oh so can, uh, canical I read during a, a post post apocalyptic phase I was going through um, playing a lot of Fallout and so uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big I'm a big gamer nerd too and so I was playing Fallout three and four uh, in New Vegas and and got really into so I read The Road and Mechanical and a couple others that escape me now but um, so and that yeah, was a, so- that was a dark that was a dark spring for me. Yeah. <laughs> So Spinrad is a syndicalist. He's an anarcho syndicalist. Yeah. He's an expat that lives in Paris. Uh, we have interviewed him for the Dickheads podcast. Nice. Um, it was one of the hardest interviews I ever did. He was so he like basically wanted to rip my head off at the beginning of it, but he chilled out when he realized I knew his work really well. But just to give That's you an so idea, so typical of that type. <laughs> just to give you an idea, Norman Spinrad, what a um, provocateur he was. He wrote a novel called The Iron Dream, which was his middle finger to Tolkien. And yeah. what he did was he wrote The Iron Dream as if he was writing a novel as Hitler, as if Hitler <laughs> had not become the leader of Germany, but had had immigrated to the U.S. and become a pulp sci-fi writer and ended up writing a novel called Lord of the Swastika. And the entire book <laughs> is this fascist fantasy basically it's almost unreadable because it is written as hitler having this like kind of fascist wet dream but when you look at it in the if you dial back you realize all he's doing is um criticizing tolkien (laughs) so So just to give you an idea of what a provocateur Norman Spinrad is. That, that's meta on a level I can't comprehend. <laughs> yeah, let me see if I, I have uh, I have Iron Dream right here. Um, and, and you look at the cover, it's uh, it's Hitler on a... Yeah, uh, on a, that's sweet, yeah. On a moped, and it's like, um, no. yeah, it's really... Yeah, Norman Spinrad is a guy you, you should know. Um, so I think you should, and you should start with the Void, Void Captain's Tale. Yeah, I'm not going to start with Iron Dream. I'm going to I'm going to save that. One. Yeah, it was intent. It's like it was intentionally written to be terrible. So you have to like go into Iron Dream. Noted. Like, yeah, noted. Yeah, and um, also the um, the FTL drives in the Void's Captain's Tale are, are powered by orgasms, but that's a whole other weird thing. <laughs> so um, so he's number one is is Spinrad. Yeah. Um, Void Captain's Tale. Number two. Um, have you read any PKD? Yeah. Do androids dream? Probably. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, the whatever became Blade Runner, Minority Report, stuff like that. Okay, I think you should read the Three Sigmata of Palmer, Palmer Eldridge. I've heard of it and never have read it, so it is PKD's masterpiece. So I think you should read okay. that. Okay, and then one more from that era. I'm going to say um, you probably read Samak, right, from the era before. That's not that era, but he's he was earlier. I'm going to go with Barry Maltzberg. You should read yeah. uh, Barry Maltzberg. And he had a book called uh, Beyond Apollo. And Beyond Apollo, it was written in 1972. It's kind of like a fuck you to like all the nationalism surrounding the Apollo program. Nice. Yeah, it's very interesting. But he's just an interesting author. You should know. We interviewed him too. He was a little bit kinder to me in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> that's good that's he's good. still with us barry um he's just a radical voice that you should know and i i might have gone Le Guin, but i know you've already read this i've read some i've read uh, three or four of hers so I, i'm familiar 
on that note, for our modern reads, the first read I'm going to give you is a book that is incredibly influenced by the dispossessed, specifically, and this was the first interview we did on the Dickheads podcast, was, an, was a writer named Carrie Vaughn, and she won the Philip K. Dick Award for a novel called Bannerless. And Bannerless is right up your alley because it is a post-apocalyptic murder mystery taking place in an attempted anarchist subculture after climate change collapse. Yeah, that's exactly where my head is all the time now. (laughs) So, and there's a sequel called The Wild Dead. Um, They're both really good, but Bannerless by Carrie Vaughn is right up Joe's alley. And I think, yeah. And uh, when I interviewed her, I had just finished rereading The Dispossessed. And then I read Bannerless and I was like, holy shit, there, you'll, you'll see there's, okay. It's a totally different kind of story because it's set on Earth, post-apocalyptic, but it has lots of themes and ideas from the dispossessed. Right. Figured. Uh, have you ever read? Have you ever read "Always Coming Home" by Le Guin? Um, uh, no, I haven't okay. read that one yet. Well, the dispossessed is like Anarchist One Hundred and One, and "Always Coming yeah. Home" is a masterclass by Le Guin. It's not an easy read. It's kind of like reading the uh, the Scaramillion by Tolkien, where it's like oh my gosh, this is so freaking dense and I can barely get through it. That's always coming home, but I think you might dig that, but that's not one of, that's not one of the recommendations. That's on the <laughs> side. So number one of the, of the 21st century novels is Bannerless, Carrie Vaughn. The next one I'm going to give you is the Binti Trilogy by Nnedi Okorafor. She's um, a Nigerian-American, uh, teaches at SUNY Buffalo. Spell that title. Um, Binti is B-I-N-T-I and they, it's a, it's a trilogy of novellas, but you can buy them all collected now. Right. And it's, um, really great Afrocentric science fiction, um, space opera, but really good. So that's, that's the other one. All all you had to say was space opera and you had me. But I'm going to go with a right-wing author for number three. And I admit okay. this, but then I, want, I, I want to preface this, that even though this author, whenever he talks on Twitter, I want to pull my eyeballs out. <laughs> uh, authors, that's okay. <laughs> have you read any Neil Asher? No, well, nothing more than a short story or two. Okay, so he has a novel called The Skinner. The Skinner is one of my favorite. It's like, it's been compared to master and commander meets dune oh yeah there you go i think that's not the best it's master and commander meets dune meets cronenberg body horror (laughs) okay forgetting that whole body horror part because the body horror (laughs) part is part of what makes the skinner totally amazing because the um the the ecology like the skinner yeah yeah the ecology of the planet they're on is really nuts it's a it's a really good 21st century read so okay on that all right joe i'm gonna assign you those six books you you have no you can take 10 years to read them but those are ones that i'm going to recommend to you although i really do think you should read Bannerless. you should go right out and read Bannerless because i think that one's gonna yeah I'll, I'll hunt it down that sounds good I, I i am way behind on my recreational reading i have to admit um, I am currently writing a book, and so all I all I'm uh, all I'm doing is uh, uh, digging through stupid court cases. Um, right, because you're writing a textbook, which is uh, it's just the worst. Um, but it's it's good for my students, terrible for my brain. 
judges are just the worst people, just so that's clear. Anyway, um, yeah. No, <laughs> well, I watched my father write a bunch of textbooks in our house, so he was a political yeah. professor, so. Yeah, I mean, luckily this is a casebook, so I, it's 300,000 words right now, but almost none of them are mine. So, it, it, but the biggest, the hardest part is just editing. I, I've been, sp I've spent the last month and a half editing, so um, it's very, it's very grueling, um, mm. but we're getting there. It's almost done. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, uh, if people want to follow you on Twitters and the like, uh, you yeah, know, God help them. Yeah. Well, you know, you get some good law content, but uh, also random talks about video games, music, and and science fiction from time to time. There. So. Yeah. Know. Nobody. Oh, and I am. I am uh, on this. I put it on the back burner right now. But but my magnum opus as an academic is uh, an article about the law law of Skyrim. Uh, and so I, I'm an obsessive Elder Scrolls player, um, Skyrim, Oblivion, games like that. Um, I am currently 18,000 words into a a play by play of all the legal themes in the in the Elder Scrolls universe and around the era, the era of Skyrim. Um, no, it's it's unreadable. It has no target audience, but and it, it's not going to help me get tenure. But my God, it's I have to get this thing out of me. Uh, and so that sounds incredibly nerdy. It, yeah, it's I mean, the footnotes alone are there, there's going to be like three dudes who read this and are like, that's awesome. That's great, man. I totally get that. Everybody else is going to be completely uninterested. But but I have to write this thing. I have to get it out of me and cast it into the world so okay and uh, you know this is something totally different but um three metal records that you think everyone should listen to oh my god there's no way there's no way just three um well, okay so essential essential metal uh, records death geez. metal records. anything yeah just give it to oh, oh thank you. okay narrow it down to death metal that really helps um all right so uh things that i listen to all the time over and over um Bloodthirst by Cannibal Corpse, huge, huge uh, Cannibal Corpse uh, fan. Bloodthirst is my favorite record. Um, let's see. Mm, God, this is impossible on such short notice. Uh, let's see. Uh, Origin Entity, Death Grind. Uh, I love Origin Entity is an incredible record. Uh, and then something, uh, let's see, let's go more, uh, more technical. Uh, let's see, what's... Uh, necrophagist necrophagist i don't know how you say it uh, necrophagist i believe necrophagist uh the record that has stab wound on it i forget the name uh uh that record is incredible and i'll figure it out in just a second have you seen the video of the guy that covers necrophagist on flute no <laughs> no but i have to now <laughs> yeah it's 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 really intense it's I, I didn't think it like when i first heard about it i was like oh that's and then i was like okay no it is very impressive actually so. yeah yeah uh, I, oh, and, and lately, uh, lately I've been really into Gatecreeper um, and Vastum are two newer um, uh, death death metal bands that are a, a little they're not as technical, more straightforward, old school stuff. But Vastum is really awesome, uh, and and Gatecreeper really good. So, so those are the two new ones. But the other recommendations are for older bands. And, and, uh, well, and I know you're a big Catatonia fan. Three. That that's something that we share. We're both Catatonia fans. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I would have said. Uh, 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 great cold distance for my my top catatonia record uh, i know lots of people 
the errors of Catatonia are very uh, alien. Divisive. Right, yeah, very divisive. I think the new record is amazing. Uh, I, I can't get into it. I'm not into the new one. I've That's tried really to... weird. That's really weird. I really love it. Well, I know. It, it's it weird. Was, they have a death metal band, um, Bloodbath. That yes, they do. Then, yeah, yeah, I really guys. enjoy Bloodbath. Yeah, yeah and uh, but you know who I've been rocking out lately um, in that vein, the progressive metal thing? Have you discovered Leprous? Um, nope. Oh, uh, dude, I'm going to send you on it. Watch live videos. Leprous, um, like like people with leprosy yeah the band yeah they're called okay. leprous it's um the band that the musicians back isam from emperor and his solo project okay and so i first discovered them because there's a song that isam plays guitar and sings on for leprous and i heard that song and i was just like holy crap these guys are amazing and the thing about leprous is is that they their sound is so strange that Every time I've told people to listen to them, I would say, make sure you listen to a couple songs, make sure you try them live because um, some of their songs are so weird. Like their new single is so weird. It has a full string section and it, yeah. And, and the, it's so weird that like when you first hear it, you're like, I don't know. But then the more you listen to it, you're like, holy crap. And the musicianship is really, really good. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, I, I'm definitely interested. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, we can nerd out about metal all day. Um, yeah. But, but uh, Joe, thank you for your time because I think people will be really excited to uh, um, to hear about your perspective as as far as being a punk rocker turned law or a lawyer to the Supreme, punk rock to the Supreme Court is pretty cool trip and journey. Um, and maybe uh, someday we'll uh, I'll uh, have to have you on to cover one of the science fiction books because we have special guests all the time. So I might as if I assign you a book for that, then you have to read it because you have. Oh to God, more homework. I mean, I, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, um, check it out. Go go listen to the, see like we did an episode on Canical for Leibowitz, and 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 so you can see like kind of yeah. what, what's entailed on it. But um, but we we uh we have a lot of fun like breaking down the books but uh i think um that yeah that banner list is the one that's gonna that's gonna get you all right i'm definitely gonna check it out all right uh joe thanks for joining me on postcards from a dying world and folks we'll see you next time